Welcome to Tower Talks with Inside Towers, the wireless infrastructure industries podcast. And now for your weekly recap, a timely review of this week's top headlines and takeaways. Here's your host. Welcome to Inside Towers Week in Review. I'm Leslie Stimson, Inside Towers Washington Bureau Chief. With us are Jay Sharp-Smith, our technology editor, John Salentano, our business editor, and Jim Fryer, our managing editor. This episode is sponsored by Inside Towers Intelligence, a quarterly market report that dives deep into the wireless infrastructure ecosystem. It looks at market trends, capital expenditures, relevant M&A transactions, and more. Intelligence is designed for managers, marketers, and investors. Our Q3 issue is out now. An annual subscription also includes an exclusive briefing and online support. So for more information or to subscribe, visit InsideTowers.com slash intelligence. Uh, so this week, the um, FAA's concerns about 5G on C-band appear to be resolving. The FAA said Thursday night, 90% of U.S. planes have been cleared, uh, and the airline CEOs sound more upbeat about the whole situation. The FAA did put out an airworthiness directive Thursday night, revising the landing requirements for the Boeing 730 MAX airplanes at airports where 5G interference could occur, according to them. After the FCC meeting uh, this week, I asked FCC Chairwoman Jessica Rosenworcel how the talks were going between the FCC, the FAA, the carriers, and the whole you know, airline industry. Um, and a couple of us were asking, you know, could the process have gone more smoothly on the FAA's part? And she, you know, acknowledged that in the future, uh, as we use more wireless airwaves, uh, we are going to have to engage in more coordination across the board, meaning across more federal agencies. Um, now, this part she's been saying for weeks, I am optimistic that 5G deployment can safely coexist with aviation safely as it does in other parts of the world. And Sharp, uh, I think you had something you wanted to discuss related to this. Well, it's interesting, um, Leslie, because uh, while things are winding down, it appears with uh, with the FAA, uh, the uh, the military's issues with uh, with uh, the C-band and uh, uh, 5G deployment uh, there doesn't seem to hit the mainstream media outlets. And uh, one of the things that I think is interesting is uh, the military is still still testing their aircraft and helicopters uh, can coexist the 5G and C-band. And uh, um, they started testing it in January of last year uh, actually before the uh, auction was completed. And uh, if you look, if you go back uh, to when the, uh, the FCC began the auction, uh, uh, they, uh, a week before that the uh, C-band auction began, they, they sent a, a memo to, uh, uh, to the FCC and said, we really don't think... Uh, we don't feel comfortable with this and we're worried about interference. And 
they decided not to uh, not to fight the uh, the auction. They just immediately went to uh, to testing it, and their tests will not be uh, completed until uh, June of uh, of this year. So you uh, there may be some more uh, there may be some more news uh, relative to uh, uh, integrating. 5G, C-band, and uh, and military aircraft. It's it's hard to say, but uh, I I really think it's interesting that uh, uh, no one really seems to bring up the military angle in, in relation to this story. So the story may still have some legs from that standpoint. You're right, and it'll also be interesting to see what happens six months down the road when the conditions that. Verizon and ATT agree to supposedly go away. John, I know you did the story on how this flies, pun intended, in in Europe, <laughs> and uh, I thought that was that was uh, revealing. Yeah, Jim. The uh, you know, there's always an argument advanced by the FAA and the wireless industry that look, five uh, G's been operational in Europe, and U.S. planes have been flying in and out of Europe for forever and uh, there's been no interference issues. <clears throat> when I looked at it, you realize there is actually a little more separation between the 5G band that's used in Europe uh, compared to the US. Uh, it's actually lower in the, in the C band down in the 3.4 range compared to 3.7 to 3.98 in uh, the US. So you actually end up with about a 400 megahertz separation in European markets and around European airports compared to about 220 in, in the United States. Now, you know, as an RF engineer, I would argue that's a lot of bandwidth and that should actually allow for uh, adequate protection. But uh, th so there is some difference, but um, uh, I think, uh, you know, if cooler heads prevail here, will the, you know, the, the science will, will prove in and uh, there may be ways of, uh, of mitigating that the whole issue altogether. I don't know if it's new filtering or as the carriers have agreed to um, not turn up some sites close to airports or or turn down the transmit power levels or you know close to airports. But um, a comparison outside of the United States is, is valid, but it, it, there are some nuances to it. Uh, so, you know, actually from, you know, I had a story this week that talks about <clears throat> Uh, the carriers deploying C-band, particularly Verizon, you know, Verizon and AT&T have um, got the green light to turn up parts of the C-band uh, in the, actually the A block, which is uh, about 100 megahertz worth um, in uh, the top 46 markets around the country. Um, Verizon has the, what they call A1, A2 and A3 blocks at 60 megahertz and AT&T is a, a an interim assignment of um, uh, 40 megahertz on the A4 and A5 blocks. So they originally had a deadline of December 5th, and then they agreed to extend it to one month to January 5th, and then another two weeks after that. So on the 19th, they fired up uh, C-band in the U.S. And uh, it was a significant move, um, I think, for the for the industry and for the carriers involved in that. Now they have uh, 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 mid-band uh, spectrum out in the, the, some of the top markets around the country. Uh, Verizon is able to then promote its uh, ultra-wideband service into uh, those markets uh, that cover about 95 million people in, in, in something like 1,700 cities. 
it's it's also interesting that Verizon in its uh, earnings report provided guidance that it was uh, uh, actually going to slow down its its overall capital spending for wireless uh, starting uh, in 2022 and going forward. Uh, as we've reported in the past, they have allocated a separate amount of $10 billion for the C-band deployments. $2.1 was actually spent in 2021 to get ready for this um, the uh, phase one deployments. And then they're going to ramp pretty aggressively uh, this year and into next year when phase two kicks in in December of 2023. Uh, Verizon has indicated they'll be spending somewhere in the order of five to six billion just for the C-band. At the same time, they're winding down their overall uh, uh, CapEx for the, the existing wireless network, indicating that the capital intensity will start to taper off as they back off on spending in the 4G network and, uh, <clears throat> and other activities. So I think it's interesting how they balance um, deploying the networks and, and, and spending the money that they have allocated. Was there anything else from the Verizon earnings call that you wanted to touch base on, John? Well, they had pretty good results. Um, the, um, they are um, enthusiastic about where they're going with, uh, with the, in meeting their objectives. And um, uh, they, uh, they did indicate they will be holding an analyst day conference in March where they'll provide a lot more detail on, on their plans for, for this year and, and beyond. So I think, uh, I think we'll get some of the uh, greater color on, on their um, plans and activities at that time. Okay. Um, while we're on the earnings calls, John, did you want to talk about Crown Castle? Hey, Crown Castle is a, an interesting company, and frankly, they they've uh, you know they took a, a bit of a hit in the past year or so um, because one of their big customers indicated they were scaling back on their small cell deployments. Um, and as a consequence, Crown Castle indicated that uh, they were um, slowing down on the numbers of uh, small cells they would deploy in um, 2021. It turns out they were cut, really cut their volume in half from about 10,000 a year down to 5,000. They indicated that um, they would um, do another 5,000 this year, but on the heels of a, an upgraded agreement with T-Mobile late in the year, uh, T-Mobile um, extended their uh, uh, agreement to occupy Crown Castle Towers out 12 years and also committed to uh, deployment of 35,000 small cells over a five-year period. Uh, this is a real shot in the arm for the company. Uh, they... Uh, they now claim, at least in their in their fourth quarter earnings call, they claim they have now uh, about 55 small cell nodes on air and another 60,000 committed around the construction in their backlog. And when you tally it all up, uh, when they get through the next several years, uh, uh, Crown Castle will be the largest operator of small cells, certainly in, in the United States. Um, uh, so what, what this uh, really does for them is um, it, it really justifies or, or reinforces the notion that their bifurcated approach to the infrastructure market, meaning uh, half their business is in, uh, in towers and the other half is in fiber, what they call the fiber segment, which includes a, an 80,000 mile uh, route mile fiber network, and then the small cells that uh, are part and parcel of that. Uh, they believe that, um, you know, they, they've 
can can uh, show that diversification away from towers only has been a big plus for them and allows them to position the company to offer a more integrated service to their mobile network operator tenants uh, as they deploy 5G and uh, C-band and uh, and uh, 3.5 gig on all these other and millimeter wave uh, going forward. So uh, interesting, it's an interesting development. I think, um, you know, we uh, will see more of it. Again, they, they will be adding more color or later in the year, but, um, you know, they, they reported capital expenditures about 120.2 billion and fiber makes up almost a billion of that. So, you know, this is a big deal for them. And I think it, it bodes well for the carriers that they, they, they know they'll have the infrastructure they need where they need it, particularly in the top 25 or 30 markets in the country where, you know, once we get the macro cell build out uh, pretty much complete, then we'll start to see a ramp up in de densification of those networks in these big markets. And I think uh, Crown Castle feels they're very well positioned to, to respond to that. Okay. Uh, so, Jim, what did you want to talk about this week? Well, we always like to not just give you the news and tell you, you know, here's, here's what's happening and, and uh, be sort of a passive uh dispenser of that, uh, we'd like to give you news you can use. And uh, this one came out this week about uh, the state of Vermont, that they need more towers, folks. They need 100 towers. In fact, the governor himself said he wants to, he wants to build 100 new cell towers to serve rural areas in Vermont. And he's working with the Vermont Public Service Department, working to pinpoint which areas of the state would, would benefit from, from those new towers. Um, and, and in fact, they think that might even probably going to need more. The, according to the, the the guy who's the director of telecom and connectivity for Vermont, for the Department of Public Service, he said, we're shooting for 100 towers, but we don't think 100 towers will provide universal ubiquitous service. Our geography, our mountainous terrain, and our settlement patterns have really contributed to the difficulty in deploying wireless service. And uh, the basic Stats are that 40% of Vermonters are not receiving adequate cell coverage to their house. 62% uh, of Vermonters, uh, Vermont roadways have poor reception, according to the uh, Department of Public Service. And 10% of, of Vermont roadways lack coverage at all from any carrier. So um, there you go, folks. Call, call the governor of Vermont and uh, help him build some towers there. <laughs> Thanks, Joe. Sharp, you wanted to talk about China and 5G, I think, right? Yes, Leslie. Uh, it's interesting. The story came out that uh, that during uh, 2021, uh, China uh, rolled out 654,000 5G base stations. Let me repeat that. 654,000. 5G base stations. Mm -hmm. And uh, at first I thought, well, that's just an astounding, astounding number, an astounding story. And, and uh, with that number, they now have uh, 1.43 million cell sites deployed in their country. But uh, the more I looked at it, the, the more incredible that number appears because in the, uh, the first half of 2021, the uh, 
They were struck with the global uh, chip shortage, and a lot of the uh, infrastructure providers, or the carriers rather, decided to go with a cost-sharing program, uh, which meant they would be uh, sharing uh, the the technology. So they had that in the first half of chip shortage, cost-sharing, and then in the second half, uh, their supply of U.S. uh, parts dried up. This is all according to uh, Nikkei Asia. And so uh, the, uh, you know, with, uh, with a lot of the bans and restrictions that we've been putting on uh, China, uh, they, uh, they, they ran out of, uh, of U.S. parts. And that also caused it to, uh, to slow down. The quote from, from, uh, from that publication said, China's camp campaign to build 5G wireless infrastructure has lost steam as manufacturers here run out of US made components forcing suppliers to make further inroads into the American and European markets instead. So even though though, uh, there were all these impediments, that makes uh, the uh, the numbers of uh, of base stations they deployed uh, last year all the more astounding, really. And it's interesting too, they're running out of US parts. We're, we're trying to build chip factories here. And, you know, it's, yeah. <laughs> you, you know, Sharp, we've done a couple of stories on China Tower and I've always uh, always been uh, amazed at the scale that they operate on. You know, they have uh, two million, over 2 million towers. Uh, the next largest operator in the world is American Tower. They have um, about 225,000 towers worldwide. So uh, the, when you look at the China market, the scale is, is completely different. And uh, it, it is a little bit uh, uh, tough to get your head around sometimes. There used to be the expression, all the tea in China that can change all the, all the towers in China. <laughs> exactly. Well, that brings us to a story that was... I just got a kick out of this week. Um, The FCC at at its meeting on Thursday upheld a $22,000 fine against a cell phone, uh, against a company for using a a signal jammer, also called um, a cell jammer, you know, because they didn't want their uh, employees to use cell phones at work. And I I got a kick out of it because of their arguments. Um, You know, it's illegal to use one of these because they interfere with uh, critical communications like the ability to call the police or 911. Um, In 2017, AT&T complained to the FCC's Enforcement Bureau. It was getting interference to a base station in Dallas. They determined the illegal signals were originating from uh, a business, Ravi's Import Warehouse. So the AT&T representative, he went with an FCC field agent to the business. And it's interesting because in the FCC report, AT&T confirmed that right before they showed up, the interference stopped. So what happened was they talked to the owner who admitted that her son had been warned by AT&T, you know, that using the jammer was illegal She told the field agent she threw out the jammer, but she wasn't willing to tell him what dumpster she threw it in, and she wasn't willing to go get it for him. She did, however, offer to sell it to the field agent. So, yeah. 
Um, the so the bureau proposed a twenty two thousand dollar fine, and the way they got to that was the base fine was seventeen thousand. They tacked on another five thousand for you know basically bribing the trying to bribe the field agent, and the business fought it, and they uh, and it was denied, and then it went to a full forfeiture order. And then the warehouse changed tactics and they claimed that they had a history of compliance and they denied that, that the owner had tried to sell the agent the jammer. The FCC didn't buy any of it and it, um, you know, it upheld the fine. And Chairwoman Rosenworcel said uh, the Communications Act is clear. You cannot make signal jammers. You can't import them. You can't sell them, ship them, or operate them. It doesn't matter if you're using them in a business classroom, a home, or a vehicle. If you are using unauthorized jamming equipment, we will find you and hold you accountable. And I just, I thought it was just funny because of the arguments these people were coming up with, um, especially the one about how they were a great licensee because they had been in compliance and all this. So anyway, that's, that's our lighthearted story of the week. So I guess, is everybody, anybody else chiming in with? Okay. Uh, thank you. That's a wrap. Thank you for listening to Inside Towers Week in Review. We'll see you again in a week. Thank you for listening to Tower Talks. To subscribe to our podcast, our daily newsletter, or use our other industry resources, please visit InsideTowers.com. Until next time, you've been listening to Tower Talks from Inside Towers, the wireless infrastructure industries podcast.